Hi, and welcome to the last Outlaws bonus content. I'm Emma Lancaster, the executive producer of Impact Studios at the University of Technology, Sydney. Before we start, I want to let Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners know that this episode contains the names and descriptions of people who've passed. Today's conversation contains information and material about a difficult part of history. The content is sometimes confronting and may cause distress. In order to tell the story of the removal and return of ancestral remains, the conversation may reference historical material. Listeners are advised that there may be words and descriptions that may be culturally sensitive and might not normally be used in the certain public or community contexts. Terms from archival material used in this podcast reflect the attitude of the author of the period in which the item was written and may be considered inappropriate today. Please be aware that this information can cause sadness and anger and is part of living histories connected to people's families. We want to tell this story with truth and respect. Thanks for listening to the Last Outlaws bonus episode with Emeritus Professor Paul Turnbull. Paul is a cultural historian from the University of Tasmania. He's been working on the repatriation of ancestors from overseas collections since the 80s. Today, he's joined in conversation by reporter Caitlin Sorey. Apologies if the line's a little bad at times. This recording took place online whilst Paul was in lockdown in Vienna. Paul began his career with a doctoral thesis in the field of 18th century British intellectual history. He then began to research the history of comparative anatomy and physical anthropology, focusing on the collecting and scientific uses of the bodily remains of Aboriginal people from the late 18th to the early 20th centuries. His work has involved close collaboration with Aboriginal communities in Queensland and other parts of Australia. We hope you find this interview with Paul informative, and if you do find yourself overwhelmed by today's conversation, we encourage you to speak to support from a national counselling service, such as Lifeline on 13 11 14. They're available any time of the day or night. What I find the most difficult, uh, one of the most difficult aspects of this work is um, that when one uncovers, um, as one does occasionally, um, you know, stories which really tell of the, the violence on the frontier or the extent to which, you know, Aboriginal people find themselves subject to, you know, scientific ambitions which lead to the desecration of the dead. Mm. When people find out about this and, and, and are told this information, which, you know, as they say, they want to know and also want the truth to be told. I mean, this is truth-telling in the the most distressing way, then, you know, it's it's really something that I think we have to prepare ourselves mm. for and really accept that it's something which is going to cause a lot of grief and, and anger if, in fact, things like the brains of Aboriginal people are, are, are discovered in collections. Mm. And and how we deal with that, I you know, I think this is this requires us to face up to this, but I think we have to be very kind of aware of, of and sensitive to what, this um, very dark part of our past reveals mm. and makes a resting place even more important in the sense that even though that material may not go to a resting place, which you know not only commemorates and, and, and houses and cares for the, those people, those ancestors who have been returned, but also is there to openly explain what happened uh, and why it happened 
not in any kind of real judgmental sense, but as a, as a, as a way of educating, you know, all Australians about our, our colonial past and, and the, the ways in which Western knowledges became implicated within colonial ambitions. I think this is very important. I mean, there will there'll be those who who continue to say, "Oh well, you know, this is this is something we should you know just move on from and forget." But it seems to me that there's there's an educational role for 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 a resting place on a par with that of of, of the Australian War Memorial, mm. which is not there to glorify war. It nev- it's never glorified war. It's 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 really um, spoken about the horror. And, and the heartbreak and, and the effects of war mm. um, and why it should be remembered. Well, I think it's the case with, with the National Resting Place, that it should, above all else, um, remind us of, of what uh, is a, a very important, if distressing, dark part of our history, while at the same time making us aware of why it is that things such as um, the statement from the heart are so important to listen to um, and and not to push to one side as we keep doing and and you know and I think if you're going to have true reconciliation um, with the past, it is a matter of of listening to that history and understanding that it's psychic and material legacies of of you know the kind of things that that happened in our colonial past are still with us and still have to be addressed. Mm. So I mean, kind of broadly, like you know, at this time, was it? Is it kind of common for a for tissue to be removed at a coronial inquest, or is this kind of a, a special case? Um, it 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 happens, but not very often. Not very often. Um, there the, the was some, there was a very small scientific community in Australia, uh, very small number of anatomists, um, but there was a strong interest in the brain. Um, the interest in the brain on the part of Australian-based anatomists was largely marsupial brains to start with Mm. Um, because as the 19th century went on, there was a growing consensus that certain parts of the brain were responsible for certain aspects of life, you know, the the autonomic nerve system, uh, higher cognitive powers, intellect, um, emotion in the case of human beings, obviously. By the second half of the 19th century, there was a kind of a growing sense that there may be interesting things to learn about the brains of peoples who at the time were, un- were believed, um, erroneously as it, as it transpired, to be at an earlier stage of human evolutionary development. So if you look at the correspondence of anatomists, particularly when Australian-based anatomists are writing to their colleagues in the United Kingdom and their colleagues in the United Kingdom are writing back to them, one theme that emerges in that correspondence is, wouldn't it be really good if we could get brains of Indigenous Australians to uh, study and also how difficult it is to get them uh, it, in a state that would allow their investigation. And it's the case that this kind of wish goes on. And you, you see it starting to emerge in the late 1860s, 1870s, because there's a, a very strong belief that by studying the brains of European and, and non-Europeans comparatively, it would be possible then to understand the evolutionary development of the brain, but probably more importantly, to get a greater sense of what various parts of the brain were responsible for 
in terms of human physiology, human functioning, in, in short, human life. So there's a growing interest in uh, when the bodies of Aboriginal people are acquired, and this usually happens when Aboriginal people die in benevolent asylums or, or in hospitals un, under white care. There is a strong uh, temptation on the part of um, local medical practitioners who have connections with um, anatomists who are usually associated with Australians, young universities, or have a general interest in questions of comparative human anatomy to see if they can acquire them brains. Um, but it happens very rarely. It happens very rarely indeed, largely because just of the challenges uh, of removing and preserving a brain uh, so that it is in a condition where it is useful for study in a comparative sense. So for doctors, what is the intellectual currency there? Yes, there is. It's not that distinct from the kind, what you might call the normal run of currency, which is that when a body is examined post-mortem and something interesting is found, and it may be a trauma, it may be some sort of pathology, uh, a developed tumour, for example, or some abnormality of an individual, then clearly there is an interest on the part of a medical practitioner to see if that part of the body can be taken, preserved and studied by colleagues. The general thing is that if something interesting is found, then it's believed professionally amongst medical practitioners at that time that they, they, they ultimately they have a duty to see if they can excise that part of the body so it can be used in an anatomy collection for, for teaching. But the remains of uh, Aboriginal people um, have, or so it's believed at the time, characteristics which are particularly interesting. So there's a strong uh, belief that the form of the Aboriginal body in the 19th century reflects the conditions of life in the Australian environment. And this raises the larger question of how it is that the body certainly by the second half of the 19th century, um, is seen as being influenced by evolutionary processes. So, for example, uh, if you look at the interest in the scientific community in the late 19th century, there's a strong interest, for example, in the structure of Aboriginal legs, feet, arms, the relative size of the body, as opposed to the uh, lower and, and upper limbs, all in the belief that the studied comparatively, they will reveal uh, interesting and useful knowledge about how it is that the human form has been shaped over time by evolutionary processes. Mm. Super interesting. So to take this back to Joe Governor. So he's been shot, he's been killed, his body is now being um, yep. looked at under a coronial inquest. Do we know much about who the coroner was, Alistair Bowman? Very little, very little. It's one of the frustrating things about Australian history and, and uh, medical history more generally. 
um, is that doctors seem to be notorious for not keeping private papers. Mm. We know very little about these practitioners, in most instances beyond where, where they trained. Sometimes it's possible to reconstruct something of their, their biography and their interests. But um, this is one of those cases where, where we, we really don't know anything about somebody who obviously is quite a dedicated medical practitioner and somebody who's quite involved in coronial inquests, but quite clearly um, also is very much aware of the interest that is there in the time in uh, using Indigenous remains to perhaps understand more uh, about aspects of human natural history. Mm. So he, he sends it to James T. Wilson. Who was James T. Wilson? Well, J.T. Wilson was an anatomist at Sydney University and uh, quite well known. Um, he had a particular interest in terms of looking at the uh, structures of marsupials in the 19th century. Mm. He was a, a, a very uh, well-connected um, with his uh, anatomists in the British context. He... He was very typical of anatomists in the 19th century in that he was Scottish and he trained in Scotland. He was actually a house surgeon under leading figures at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. Mm. And he then went to study under William Turner at the University of Edinburgh and he, well, he, he caught Turner's eye and Turner made him one of his demonstrators. Now, Turner was a very interesting figure in as much as he had very clear advanced interests in human evolutionary development. And among the things that Turner is remembered for today is the work that he did trying to work out what he saw as the morphological peculiarities of indigenous Tasmanian uh, people's remains mm. and to speculate on where they stood in terms of human evolutionary history. Um, and he's one of these big figures who embrace in broad outline Darwin's theories fairly early on. And Wilson is one of a number of his students. I mean, we can also find people like uh, R.J.A. Berry, who becomes Professor of Anatomy at Melbourne University in the early years of the 20th century. Again, somebody who uh, is very close and trained by Turner and becomes interested particularly in questions of human anatomy. And he uh, was one of a, a, quite a number of uh, young anatomists who by virtue of patronage of Turner and uh, other important figures within British anatomy at that time, who are able to find themselves positions in various um, colonial contexts. Hmm. And in the case of Wilson, um, he uh, basically um, makes his name as a young researcher at the medical school at the University of Sydney. And it's important to see that he was one of a group of people at the University of Sydney at that time who included Grafton Elliot Smith, who becomes very important in terms of debates and arguments 
again about the nature not only of human biological evolution but also our, our cultural evolution. Mm. But so, so, but, but James T. Wilson in particular, like, is he seen in the Australian science scene or even kind of the world science scene? Is he is he a bit of a rock star? Is he influential? How do people view him? Well, he's 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 very well regarded. He's he's sort of well regarded to the point that on the basis of his work, um, he eventually leaves uh, the University of Sydney to take up the chair of anatomy at the University of Cambridge. Oh, that's a big position to take when you're coming from the colonies. Well, you know, this was kind of part of the the, the way that the, the, the scene amongst anatomists worked at that time. Many of them were trained in the United Kingdom, a, a, quite a significant number of them trained in Edinburgh, and their first important position, as it were, would be within uh, a colonial uh, university. And in the case of Australia, you find uh, a significant number of Edinburgh-trained uh, anatomists given positions here in Australia. But they don't see themselves as um, staying in the long run. Many of them see uh, their position within Melbourne, Sydney or Adelaide as an important stepping stone, ultimately, ideally, uh, to getting back to the UK. And I suppose you could say that for some of these individuals, the ability to be in Australia and have closer access to the remains of Indigenous Australians means that the remains of Indigenous Australians almost become a kind of bargaining chip, if you like, or or they become uh, a source of being able to cultivate the attention of one's patrons or or sustain um, patronage on the behalf of people like um, Sir William Turner or uh, Alexander McAllister in Oxford, the professor there. And you find that uh, when you look at their correspondence, it's an interesting blend of fascination and curiosity about the nature of the deep history of Indigenous Australians and particularly how they uh, have been shaped or so it's believed by evolutionary forces. But what's blended in this is is always what one reads as, as a desire to be remembered, as it were, as a good worker for science in the eyes of one's senior peers. Mm. I wouldn't go as far as to say that, that you know, the remains of our, uh, Indigenous people become, in a rather disturbing way, apples for the teacher. But you do find instances of this. I mean, if you look at um, William Lodrick Crowther, for example, in Tasmania, to secure his son a position at one of the London teaching hospitals, he supplies the remains of Indigenous Tasmanians to people he knows within that institution. So there's a way in which um, you cannot discount the fact that these are people who are driven by scientific curiosity. And I mean, there's, there's a, again, there's a kind of false tendency to sort of see these people as somehow, um, you know, not scientists, not real scientists, pseudoscientists, um, you know, think of them in worse ways, uh, sadists or, you know, whatever. I mean, this is, this is nonsense. I mean, these, these are the main 
well-trained scientific individuals of their time engaged in what they see as genuine, uh, important science. Mm. But at the same time, they're human. Mm. And like most academic situations, uh, it helps to curry favour. But I wouldn't discount the fact that this was uh, curiosity-driven science, and it was science of the time. Mm. To kind of dismiss it as somehow you know, immoral, evil, uh, pseudoscience. I think that's nonsense. I think the, the critically important thing to grasp is that this was the science of the day. And what it tells us is that science was a very human activity. Hmm. It's interesting, though, because J.T. Wilson was investigated by Sydney University for, you know, a, a, obtaining human remains. Yes. So yes. it wasn't yes. completely kosher. Well, this this raises one of the kind of great strands in the story of medical history in the 19th century, which, of course, is that in order to teach anatomy, it's strongly believed at that point in uh, through, through that period that clearly if you're going to teach anatomy, students have to be trained in such a way that they understand the human body. And what this means, of course, is that uh, they should be able to uh, learn anatomy through dissection of the dead. Mm. And what this means, of course, is that there is uh, a need to acquire the corpses of the dead. Now, this raises a serious moral problem, which, uh, you know, is, is still with us today to, to some degree. And that is uh, ensuring, uh, as, as what happens today, of course, is that the uh, use of the dead is done in a respectful, moral way. So if you look today at anatomy schools, when there is still the use of the dead in clinical teaching, it's done by people who've donated their bodies to science freely. Mm. More and more today, of course, we're seeing that um, anatomy is being taught virtually. And so the, the, to, to, to ensure, ultimately, that the teaching is conducted in a way that is quite ethical, quite proper. But the dilemma in the 19th century is how to obtain the dead. And uh, the problem up until the 1830s with the growth of medical education is that there is a shortage of corpses and what this does is it generates uh, an appalling industry in terms of people uh, acquiring the dead to sell them to medical schools. Now, historians such as Ruth Richardson have explained in great detail the appalling nature of this trade in the dead, uh, mm. the so-called resurrection men, as it were. And in order to try and stamp this out, what happened was that the medical profession lobbied Parliament and eventually, in the early 1830s, managed to get an Anatomy Act passed by Parliament, which regulated the use of the dead. And what this did was essentially put an end to much of the illicit trade in the dead. But what it meant was that those individuals who died in uh, poor houses, in prisons, in hospitals, whose bodies were not claimed by relatives or if the relatives simply didn't know that these individuals had died in those circumstances, that because the state had cared for them, 
because the state had effectively um, looked after them in the case of those who were in hospitals and benevolent asylums, in poor houses, workhouses, then the state had the right to use their bodies for the teaching of medicine, the teaching of anatomy, in the belief that this would basically uh, promote the greater good, that there would be greater knowledge of the workings of human body, of physiology, of how to treat breakages of limbs, for example, how to treat things like gunshot wounds, for example. And this was the situation in the 19th century, but it was greatly resented by ordinary people who did find themselves down on their luck, who were, through no fault of their own, poor, who were destitute, that their end would likely be a death to end up in an anatomy school and to have their remains dissected. And there was a great fear about this. I mean, if you look at working-class burial societies in the 19th and early 20th centuries, one of the things about those uh, societies is they're set up to ensure that people have enough funds Mm -hmm. to ensure that they have a decent burial, Mm. that they don't end up as teaching specimens. Now, the strict letter of the law in the 19th uh, century, as it is today, is that if a body is... Uh, dissected, if it is used for teaching, then it will be decently buried when it's fulfilled its usefulness in terms of anatomical teaching. In the strict letter of the law, at the time when Bowman and other local coroners are at work, if they are doing post-mortems, then according to the strict letter of the law, everything should be buried decently. Mm. after they have um, fulfilled their examinations. But, as is widely recognised within elite circles, certainly within medical circles at the time, if medical practitioners are not allowed to take interesting specimens, this will grind research and teaching to a halt. Or so it's argued, in fact, before the um, the, 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 the Supreme Court in, in, in Australia in the early 20th century. I mean, there's a very celebrated case in the early 20th century which tries to address this question of whether, in fact, it's lawful uh, to have specimens of a body in one's possession. Mm. And at the end of the day, you find that people like the uh, High Court uh, Justice, elite Chief High Court Justice of the time, Sir Samuel Griffith, um, whom after... Griffith University is named today, Mm. uh, argues that, um, yes, indeed, it it is important to regulate the teaching of anatomy. Yes, indeed, according to the law, it should be the case that after a body is examined, after it may be used lawfully for anatomical teaching, the remains should be decently buried. But he also says, look, if it's the case that uh, medical practitioners are, are, are not allowed to take specimens then this is going to have a grave impact upon uh, medical research, upon the teaching of medicine. In short, it's going to do people no good whatsoever. So it's a situation where uh, it's best things are best left as they are. And as one of the other justices at that time uh, sitting on this case also remarks, it's the case that a blind eye has always been turned to this taking of remains. And, well, that's, that's the way it is. Mm. So how did so what was JT Wilson investigated for then? 
Well, Wilson was was investigated for taking um, remains. I believe in one from from memory, one of the cases involved that of a Chinese man, and Wilson again out of interest in terms of comparative human anatomy at the time, uh, wanted to take the man's skull. And as a result of that, uh, he did so. But uh, according to the evidence of the time, it was the case that he did not tell anyone what he had done and certainly had not told the relatives of the individual in question what, what he had done. And this apparently leaked out into the press at the time and uh, as a result of that, there was, there was a scandal. Yeah, so that in this particular case, he was subject to investigation by the University Senate, the Senate of the University of Sydney, after what happened was that he'd removed the skeleton from the body of a Chinese man who'd actually died in Sydney's Prince Alfred Hospital. Mm. Now, Wilson even went to the extent of making sure that even though he removed the, the, the skeleton, the crania he was particularly interested in, Wilson made sure that the man's face was left intact to hide the fact from his friends uh, and, and family, I think, also from memory, who came to view the body before the coffin was actually sealed. Now, the skeleton itself, he then had articulated and wanted to put it in the anatomy museum to, to presumably uh, illustrate its, what he saw as its racial peculiarities. Now, the point is that Wilson knew at that time that he was in breach of the Anatomy Act in New South Wales. And mm. the Anatomy Act in New South Wales followed the British legislation uh, pretty much to the letter. Uh, it was gazetted in 1881. But when he was dragged before the Senate to explain himself, he argued that uh, he was justified in taking the skeleton. And at the time, he argued that his justification um, was that everyone did it. It was the, the practice in all scientific and properly equipped medical schools in the world to secure specimens like this for their museums. Mm. And he also argued that if, if he was you know, if, this, if he was taken to task for what he'd done, uh, then this would sure ensure that uh, you know, the liberty of, of medical practitioners to take specimens would be greatly restricted. And medical knowledge would be the worst. Mm. But, you know, and, and the other thing about this too, and which I think is important, is, is, is that he assured the Senate at the time that he tried to do, he tried to do, do this as, as quietly as possible, as quietly as possible. And, you know, as he said at the time to the Senate, you know, that, that he'd always taken the greatest precautions against publicity. Uh, and possible scandal, because, of course, um, from time to time, there had been such scandals which had been picked up by the newspapers uh, and had caused general disquiet um, about the way that specimens were supposedly being obtained from the dead. Mm. And in this particular case, um, what Wilson did was he fingered one of the, the porters of the hospital who'd been fired by him and as far as one can gather, what happened was that the, basically the, the, the porter went to the local newspaper and sort of said, you want to know what's going on down at the University of Sydney? And so scientists at the time had to be very discreet by, by, you know, about what they were doing. People like J.T. Wilson were very keen to be uh, secretive 
about their taking of remains um, when it was a situation where there were family, for example, or friends wanting to claim the body. The case in the 1880s where he found himself questioned by the University Senate for his practice, I think is illustrative of a general desire on the part of scientists not to, to want to be seen upsetting contemporary moral sensibilities. It's quite clear from looking at the historical record of the time that uh, the theft of remains from burial places or their taking uh, of bodily structures during post-mortem examinations, many people do feel that this is um, unethical, it's outrageous, it's immoral, uh, and it should not happen. So, I mean, it is very modern in the sense that that dilemma about the treatment of the human body and whether by examination of bodily structures post-mortem we might learn new things as opposed to uh, ensuring, uh, as our common humanity dictates, that we treat the dead with respect mm. um, and reverence. These two things are always in a, in a, in a state of tension, which might, one might say are, are kind of better resolved today, as it were. But it's not surprising that in the, the late 19th century, um, somebody could use the floor of parliament or the popular press um, to object to the treatment of the dead in this way. Mm. So Bowman tells the police that the brain was removed so that Professor Wilson could study the convolutions of the brain of an Aboriginal murderer. Yeah. And Dr Andrew Ross's response is, that's not good science. And that's a modern, that feels like a modern response to... It's emerging science. Well, I, I guess you could can, can interpret it that way. I'd, I'd be inclined to, to, to obviously ask more about Ross's background and the extent to which uh, he believes that the brain is the organ of the mind. Mm. Um, it may well be a kind of concerted, um, you know, a, a concerned religious response on the part of Ross, mm. believing that the brain may well be responsible for certain aspects of human life, but ultimately the most important aspects of life, moral reasoning, intelligence, emotion, etc., are qualities uh, which have a non-material basis, that they are ultimately supernatural elements of the human condition. Mm. And so the idea, uh, which is common within circles of, of, uh, of anatomists who generally to subscribe to human evolution at this time, is that things like the convolution of the brain may well differ in different peoples and may be illustrative of the evolutionary development of the brain over time. If you, you look at the discussions about the nature of the brain in the wake of the uptake of Darwin's theories of evolution, you can almost draw a, a kind of parallel, as it were, between the way that the uh, composition of the earth, the development of the earth over time from its original creation is understood and the nature of the human brain, so that you have a, a, a solid core of the earth, for example, and over time what happens is that greater layers are attracted to form against the gravitational core of the Earth and ultimately what you get are the processes which are at work on the surface layers of the Earth, volcanic uh, eruptions, 
you know, kind of changes in terms of, of uh, the, the travel of soils along rivers. In short, the landscape changes. And you could see that in the discussions about the nature of the human brain, a similar kind of argument, that there is a deep brain, as it were, an ur-brain, and that in evolutionary terms what happens is that certain other structures become more sophisticated, mm. as the language of the time puts it. And I think this is it, that when you look at uh, the interest in the convolutions of the brain, the question that's being asked there is, well, are there significant differences here which are uh, of evolutionary importance? Mm. J.T. Wilson ultimately justifies the removal by saying, well, you know, he didn't have any fr- friends or family, so we had no one, no one to ask. What do you make of that? That's a very good legal defence. Um, because what Wilson is doing is quoting the Anatomy Act of the time, which is if the individual does not have family or friends, then uh, he has the right uh, to proceed to conduct an examination of a body. It's a bit of an argument, though, which kind of stretches the provisions of the Anatomy Act, because in this particular case, what's happening is that Wilson is taking charge, as it were, of a bodily structure that's been removed from the body. So he is not involved in uh, subjecting the body of Joe Governor to dissection for the purposes of anatomy teaching or, um, you know, post-mortem examination. So under the provisions of the Anatomy Act, um, whereas that would have been completely fine given the fact that no relatives had come forward, uh, the body was unclaimed, but I think it's a kind of very much a kind of grey area that I mentioned earlier when, uh, as it were, a bodily structure passes from the body via one medical practitioner to another medical practitioner um, mm. who is involved in, in research uh, of comparative human anatomy. You know, and again, as, as the judgments of the time would have said, well, yes, strictly speaking, this, you know, is... Uh, illegal. Um, certainly, it upsets our moral sensibilities. I think it's a, it's it's again, you know, Wilson trying to justify what he's done. Um, and uh, if he were to stand up there and say, "Well, science demands that I do this," well, obviously, that's not going to play at that point in time. But um, and most people would would clearly see Wilson as no nothing other than than a than a dedicated. Um, medico-scientific individual at that time. Mm. But um, he wants to defend himself, obviously, from from the charge of of acting immorally and and possibly illegally, I would say. Mm. As to whether relatives knew what was going on, well, um, again, uh, it's the case that um, most people did not know what was happening because there was a very strong tendency to keep very quiet about this lest we cause a scandal. Mm. So from there, his brain is received by J.T. Wilson and then a few years later we know that it was sent to James Flashman. Yeah. Who was James Flashman? Well, Flashman was an anatomist who who had a particular interest in the physiological basis of insanity. And uh, one might say flippantly there was a lot of it about at the time because if you look at one of the major causes of, of, of in, uh, mental illness at that time, uh, in many instances it's connected with tertiary syphilis. Mm. And this would leave um, 
its indications on various parts of the body, including the brain. So the uh, government is persuaded by Flashman, uh, Wilson, Anderson Stewart at the University of Sydney to set up a, a, a laboratory within the anatomy department of Sydney University, which will um, focus on trying to understand in greater depth um, the uh, physiological uh, signs, as it were, of mental illness. And so, again, this is, uh, you know, why Flashman has a particular interest in, in the brain. And I think it's because, uh, as he himself says, there, there, there are two things that are at work here, one of which is trying to understand the nature of insanity. But it's interesting that Flashman also points out what he believes to be the evolutionary importance of the Australian brain and almost argues that, that New South Wales has a, a, a solemn duty, as it were, to science to uh, try to collect and, 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 and explore and investigate as many Aboriginal brains as they possibly can. And he sort of uh, here is reflecting, I think, the, the general debate and discussion going on within uh, anatomy circles within the United Kingdom at this time which is that there may well be interesting things to learn from studying the brains of Australian and other Indigenous peoples in various different parts of the world to understand ultimately uh, not only the nature of human evolution, but also what parts of the brain are responsible for what particular mental faculties that we have. Mm. So the study of... Australian Aboriginal brains. Like it seems to have been a bit of an obsession for Flashman. What happened? What, how? I mean, how did he die? And what happened to this branch of science in Australia post Flashman? Um, well, I don't know whether you, one can say he was obsessed with it. it. Was it was among his interests, as it were? And, and again, I think we have to be a bit careful here mm. to see that you know, for most comparative anatomists, they have a range of interests, mm. and it may well be that they have an interest in Australians. But that may well be one interest among many mm. that they have at that point in mm -hmm. time. I mean, there's a tendency to, again, to sort of see uh, these individuals as primarily interested and in spending most of their time looking at Indigenous remains. Well, that's, that's certainly not the case. It, it, it may be a, a, a significant interest that they have, but um, it's not by far the, the, the only interest that they have have generally. Um, most of them are interested in, in the evolutionary implications of, of um, you know, of, of the development of, hum, of human structures mm. um, uh, or the appearance of human structures in, in the brain. It continues. Interest continues to develop. Everything grinds to a halt, of course, because of the First World War. And uh, as a consequence of that, it becomes the case that really it's not until into the 1920s gradually things start to pick up a bit. And there's an interest on the part of a number of individuals who pursue aspects of the anatomy or the physiology of, of Aboriginal people. But it becomes a kind of niche science, as it were, one of the factors which I think is responsible for 
a lesser interest in the anatomy of Indigenous Australians is a growing interest in studying living Aboriginal communities. Hmm. Now, a lot of this interest, of course, is, is devoted towards Aboriginal culture. Uh, you find the development of a functionalist anthropology, particularly after the chair of anthropology is set up in Sydney in the mid-1920s. Um, but when you look at the kind of physiological investigations that occur from the late 1920s into the 1930s and thereon, uh, the general interest is in understanding the physiology of Aboriginal populations by field research. Mm. So you find there's a lot of interest in things like respiration uh, in terms of what uh, one can learn about Aboriginal people by observing their, their daily behaviour, by close examination of their bodily characteristics. But the, the, the general point, I think, is that interest slides from the dead to the living. Mm. And also it's probably true to say that, that by the 1920s, many of the older assumptions about human evolution are beginning to be questioned. And the very straightforward interest, for example, that there is in racial classification, which takes up the interests of quite a number of, of medico-scientific individuals in you know, the first 40 or so years uh, after 1860, gradually kind of dies away because of the belief that it's almost impossible to really understand racial differences um, because of the sheer diversity of form that it, uh, exists not only between people who are classified as being in different racial groups, but also those who are in the same group. Mm. And one thing that is there from the 1880s onwards is a growing belief that, uh, you know, the degree of admixture of human populations is such that there's really not a lot to be gained by studying comparatively large amounts of, of, of crania uh, bones or even if you can get your hands on them, brains. So the focus on the Aboriginal brain and other bodily structures from the late 18, 1920s in, onwards tends to be on individual bodies. And a lot of this work tends to be a fairly meticulous recording of the shape, form, weight of a particular organ, not just the brain, but also other parts of the body, in the belief generally that down the track this may, may, may make some sense. Mm. So these tend to be very much um, focused studies on one or, or, or two individuals. So you have actually looked for Joe Governor's brain. How did you do that? I mean, looking at it, the, the, the first thing that I noticed, obviously, was, was the connections of J.T. Wilson to, to Cambridge. And so I naturally assumed, because uh, Edward Charles Sterling, Archibald Watson um, at Adelaide were sending uh, soft tissue structures to uh, Alexander McAllister um, and his successors at the Department of Anatomy in, in Cambridge, that this is where the brain may have likely gone. What kind of furthered my suspicions was the work that was being done by Wilfred Duckworth, 
who was appointed the first lecturer in physical anthropology at the University of Cambridge, but took a particular interest in comparative investigation of human brains and uh, published a series of, of, of pieces, series of articles, um, are reporting on his dissection of a number of, of Australian brains. And so looking at this interest, which is clearly there in the brains of not only human beings, but, but also various uh, Australian marsupials and, and monteremes in, in Cambridge at that time, and the connections which existed between Wilson uh, and Cambridge, it seemed to me uh, quite possible that if the brain went anywhere, um, it, it may have gone to Cambridge. But uh, finding out what was in Cambridge at that time, this was research that I did in, in the early 1990s, um, proved somewhat difficult because of the resistance uh, of the then uh, head of the centre of what was then the Leverholm um, Centre for, for Human Evolutionary Studies to uh, repatriation of, of Indigenous Australian remains. Mm. Uh, that situation has changed now, and there is a, a, a dialogue in, in train at the moment. But back in the early 1990s, there was still significant resistance on the part of various institutions to consider the repatriation of material. This is when they effectively tried to ban you from accessing material. Was it that same trip? Yes, yes. This, this, this was a kind of bizarre experience on several occasions. I think the, the most curious was in Oxford, where I was refused access to material on, on the grounds that I had entered the museum on a, on a day that it was closed to the public. Um, I'd actually entered the museum through a door um, to the pit river, from the Pitt Rivers um, Museum, where I was actually uh, visiting. And I just very innocently walked into the museum and, and spoke to the person there on the desk and sort of said, look, could I arrange to talk to the, uh, the librarian of the Hope Library of Zoology? And the first question I got was, how did you get in here? And I said, I walked through that door. Uh, second question I got was, are you a member of the university? And I said, well, actually, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a visiting uh, fellow here. At the, in, I was actually associated in London through Roy Porter to the Wellcome Institute for the History of Medicine. And it was at that point that a porter appeared by my side um, saying, you better leave the building now, sir. Wow. And uh, I was told that if I wanted to find ac get access to this material, I, I should write, um, which I did. And uh, the response I got was that the, the uh, request had to be put before what in those days was the governing body of the University of Oxford, its hebdominal board, um, to decide whether I was a bona fide scholar or not. Mm. Now, what was also swirling around in Oxford at that particular point in time was that I was some sort of nutter um, who believed that I was working on behalf of Aboriginal people. And, you know, it was kind of, kind of one of these bizarre, um, really quite surreal events that occurred. Mm. And eventually I, it, I was invited in to speak to the then director of the museum, who, who was an Australian entomologist, who was, who was actually very apologetic for what had happened mm. and quite clearly understood what, what, you know, the, the, what the sensitivities of what was going on here and why I should be so interested in the work that I was doing. Mm. And, yes, it was declared I was a bona fide scholar and I was granted access the, the day before I was leaving the country, which I thought was, you know, it, it, I, I don't know whether that was just because Oxford's processes 
run so slow. Mm. But the thing I always remember was that as I was there arranging to have this material photocopied, which was relating to, to remains that were actually taken from Tasmania, the porter who'd kind of jostled me out of the building um, some months before walked up to me and said, oh, I'm terribly sorry about that, but I thought you were American. <laughs> Um, <laughs> which are, you know, kind of just one of those things. Yeah. But yeah, but 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 other places, um, I think were 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 kind of faced with the dilemma that because I was obviously a historian doing doing historical research, that I I couldn't really be denied access. But there were some uh, institutions. I mean, Cambridge at that stage was another example where, um, I, I was, you know, told that I, no, I couldn't see anything about this because it was too sensitive. Mm. Uh, it was all going to be resolved, da, 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 which it never was. Same thing at the University of Edinburgh. Um, the then professor of anatomy, Matthew Kaufman, refused me access to information relating to the remains of Indigenous Australians, which were in the department at that stage. That information was in the department. Kaufman actually had the letters of William Ramsey Smith to Sir William Turner and um, his successor. And what happened was that uh, Kaufman sort of said, well, you know, I, I have been threatened by Aboriginal groups, um, mm. you know, and, and I'm not going to take any more of this from them and the BBC renter crowd of left-wingers. Right. And you can't see anything. And and it was quite bizarre. It was very, very strange because um, he had the key material in his office and even go to the point of pointing to it in a, in a, a kind of painted metal trunk at that stage and saying, well, it's there, but you can't see it. And also said to me, well, you know, if I have any more of these threats um, from from Aboriginal activists, I'm going to take these these letters out and burn them. Um, so he was quite upset about the whole thing. And, and the, one of the key reasons he was upset was because by that stage, the, the university senate had said to him, well, you, you have to prepare this material to be returned to Australia. They had seen that there was really no no strong ethical argument for keeping this material and it should be repatriated. But you know, Coffin was going to hang out to the end, as it were, in in the belief, as he argued, mm. that they were still um, scientifically important items. What do you, I mean? What are your thoughts on like a national resting place? I know this is being discussed at the moment. That's a difficult one for me to comment on because I think the people who 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 are the descendants uh, of the community in this instance probably should be the ones to decide. Mm. It's. It's something that, I, again, I've been kind of thinking a little bit more about of late because um, whereas most of my research has focused on collections of crania and, and other post-cranial material where quite clearly uh, those ancestral remains are wanted back by their community for burial in in ancestral country where that's possible or there's a general agreement that they should be put into a resting place if the provenance is so poor that we can't connect them to a particular country or or, or community on that country or with with the links to that country um but then we get to the the, the question of the derivatives and Quite clearly, it seems to me that those parts of the body, brains and whatever, should should be accorded decent burial. 
with the proviso, of course, that it's the wish of that community to decide what should happen with with those remains, um, which is very difficult. I, I mean, the the other thing that that's you know at work here is the stories that are surround the fate of individuals and their bodies. I mean, recently I've been involved in working with the Kimberley Aboriginal Arts and Law Centre up in um, Fitzroy Crossing. And this has involved a bust of a man which uh, I encountered in a German anatomy collection at the University of Cologne some years ago. Subsequent research has shown that this bust, it's the head and uh, neck of, of a man, is actually modelled from life. Um, it's actually modelled from a head which was taken off a body uh, and preserved by a German anatomist who was visiting, uh, doing field research in Western Australia in the early years of the, the 20th century. Mm. And here there's a, an instance where uh, again, the brain, well, not just the brain, but the entire head was taken. Um, it was dissected and examined in the 1920s. It was actually a doctoral thesis was written about aspects of the head. Now, the community um, who this man came from clearly want to see the bust returned and, and are discussing what, what should be the ultimate fate of it, should it should in fact be buried or or you know what, what? What should be his future? But it certainly should not stay in a scientific collection. And it's also raised the question of more generally about body parts, as it were, soft tissue specimens, and and their existence. And it, and it's true to say that 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 really, in terms of repatriation, what we focused on to date has been the obvious collections, um, the cranial collections, the postcranial material. But I think what is also needs to be considered um, is indeed what remains in the way of soft tissue specimens in, in various states, prepared or otherwise, and what what is done with them. Mm. It, it, you know, and I think it, this is probably going to this is very profoundly distressing. I mean, the, the case in the Kimberleys I mentioned largely because um, being able to present this research to people and to say to them, well, this is what happened. Um, uh, has has really caused great distress amongst people. I mean, you kind of, in your research, you've come up against institutions kind of resisting repatriation. How can they do a better job of handling that going forward? Um, well, let me preface that by saying that most institutions now accept the importance of repatriation. It's been a long struggle, and it's a struggle that um, has been achieved by, by Indigenous Australians and, and other Indigenous peoples around the world. It's not something that, that scientists and museums um, felt was a good thing to do. They had to be pushed. They had to see what was going on. They had to reflect upon that past and to understand, um, as the Germans would say, the context of injustice in which these uh, events took place. So the number of institutions which are now um, opposed to repatriation or simply as often as the case, believes that it's just a political stunt, which somehow if we keep quiet and it will just go away in time, are very few. Here in Europe, for example, um, you would find that most German institutions, well, all German institutions, would, would, would accept the importance of entering into discussions um, about repatriation. In the first instance, there are very big pushes here in Germany to extend 
the work which is done by groups like the German Looted Art Foundation to to look at colonial collections um, and to to understand how these uh, items ended, ended up in German museums, and this includes human remains, with a view to entering into their, their, their repatriation. In the case of France, um, there's still resistance. Uh, it's curious resistance in as much as even though at the presidential level uh, there's been an agreement that repatriation should occur, the French Ministry of Culture, for example, still sits on it and refuses to budge, um, believing, I think, that uh, the remains in their possession are still scientifically important and should not be surrendered. Mm. How long they continue that stance in the light of recent debates about colonial collections in France and the moves by uh, the presidency to, to enter into negotiations or to charge the government with negotiations about the return of materials to Africa... Um, in the first instance, um, remains to be mm. seen. In Italy, there is still a very strong belief that uh, indigenous remains are scientifically important and that they are part of the scientific patrimony of Italy and should not be repatriated. Mm. The argument in the Italian case, I think, is even more breathtaking in that much as they argue that they illegally acquired this material um, because they simply bought it um, they were not involved in the plundering of Aboriginal graves. They had no involvement in colonial activities in Australia. Um, they are basically simply taking this material, which they acquired in legal means, and it continues to be scientific important and, uh, and scientifically important, and therefore should not be repatriated. That's a very interesting argument <laughs> to say, oh, our hands are clean, we didn't do the dirty work. Well, you can see that resistance, you know, went through several phases, one of which was generally emphasising the scientific importance. Then it moved and shifted somewhat to saying, well, yes, they're scientifically important, but we weren't involved in how this material got here in the first place. Um, and now its scientific value repays anything that was done in the past. And the argument extends out to say, well, what we might learn in way of new knowledge is almost a kind of recompense for for the, the outrages that were done mm. in the colonial era. Mm. But, you know, if you were to take a worldwide survey of it and look at institutions, um, certainly institutions in former settler colonies are, are engaged in repatriation by and large. Many European states are now um, willing to, to discuss, you know, repatriation of material. There are still some that are holding out. But generally, I think within another 10 years, we'll, we'll see the return of individuals um, to the remains of individuals to, to Australia, most of them. That was Emeritus Professor Paul Turnbull from the University of Tasmania in conversation with reporter and audio producer Caitlin Sorey. If you find that this conversation has caused you distress, we encourage you to seek support from friends, family and elders, your local Aboriginal medical service or a national counselling service, such as Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. If you want to find out more about repatriation, there is an excellent resource. It's a website called Return, Reconcile, Renew. Visit it at returnreconcilerenew.info forward slash. 
Impact Studios acknowledges the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Buru Barongal people of the Darug Nation upon whose ancestral lands UTS campuses now stand. We'd also like to pay respect to the elders both past and present, acknowledging them as the traditional custodians of knowledge for these lands. The Impact Studios audio producer for this episode was Ryan Pemberton. You can hear the full three-part series of The Last Outlaws, a podcast where we explore the lives and legacies of Jimmy and Joe Governor, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>